Money is an awesome thing if you know how to handle it, the joy it brings. Welcome to Straight Talk, Clear Decisions with Rick Saylor and co-host Eric Hamburg. As an investor, you should know what you're buying and what you're really holding. We'll demystify investing and lay it all out for you in easy-to-understand terms. Now, here's Rick and Eric. Rick Saylor, smooth financial sailing for the best part of your life. Well, I'm Rick. And I'm Eric. And we are your transparent wealth management hosts. Welcome to our show. Well, Eric, here we are in the uh, beginning in the throes of the winter. It's actually gotten a little milder. It, it but, has. Uh, and, and here we both struggle with the Ohio Valley sinus. CDC infection, whatever you want to call it. I think, yeah, this is like the beginning of the, this is the longest I've ever dealt with this. I've got allergies and, you know, it's exasperated in this part of the country. And um, so now I'm in my, I'm starting into my seventh week, seven count that, and, and probably three weeks longer than I've ever had to deal with it. So I haven't quite completed that, but at least I'm on some new medicines, and I am hope I'm getting better. So if you, if our voice sounds a little rough or, you know, we, we have to stop and take a cough, then you understand why. We, we don't want to be <laughs> don't want to be rude, but uh, that is what we're dealing with here. So, you know, we've, uh, Eric, we talk about this holistic, this transparent wealth management approach, the holistic wealth management approach. And, you know, I think about Steve Jobs again and how he did that with Apple. He wanted to mitigate the dysfunction between the parts. And I think about what we call the four pillars. And I think of wealth management, you know, whether it's either fee-based or it's advisory. And we do both. We just pick whatever, you know, the client needs and, and fill the solution. That's right. And if you look at the tax pillar, you know, tax is both tax planning and preparation. Planning is optional. Pl- um, preparation is mandatory which we've got our tax partner, a separate unrelated business who takes care of the tax aspect. And then the third one is protecting against your risks. You know, you know, it only takes you a few minutes, may have taken your entire life to build your wealth. It only takes a little bit of time to lose it. So make sure that you, as a high net worth investor, that you have the coverages that you should have and you're paying a fair price for them. And the last pillar is estate planning. You know, it takes your whole life to build up your wealth, create your wealth. The last thing you want to see is the probate process take a good chunk of that away. So making sure your estate is in order, we've got both estate planning attorneys and elder law attorneys to make sure it is in place when that day comes. And of course, this show, like all of our shows, you know, we're not giving advice today. It's just educational and formative. Um, as for illustrative purposes, in, in purposes, it doesn't constitute investment advice, tax advice or legal advice, and it always makes sense to consult with qualified financial, legal, or tax, or even real estate professionals prior to taking any actions. Now, today's show is a little unique. Uh, You know, when we look at that holistic wealth management approach, we use a lot of different planning tools for folks. You know, we use with with income. We talked about that in our income show. We're trying to get more income out of portfolios. Uh, Alpha, Beta, Now Gamma was our show last week, and you can go see that on the uh, on our host page, it's been posted, I think, or will be soon. And that was our 100th show, wasn't it? It was our 100th show. So now today, though, uh, in, uh, we've used demographics in our show, and we have a, a, a guest today with us, uh, an honored guest that I can say I've known for probably over a decade now. And um, some of these topics we're going to talk about with regards to demographics comes from the HS Dent organization. And... It's an economic research company, and they use some things to predict market cycles and what we call trends in the market. But, of course, nobody has a crystal ball. 
and you can't really predict the future, but it's, I think you'll find it uncanny in some of the things and, and how many times actually has been accurate. So uh, Rodney uh, Johnson is uh, president of HS Den and also the senior uh, editor and uh, on our e-newsletter, which you can get a free subscription to. That's that's our beginning piece. Every every subscription, we love that because it's very pithy and to the point. It's straight talk. It says here's what happened in the market. This is what it means to you. And if you go to our website, straighttalkcleardecisions.com, a lot of our white papers and a lot of our research reports are based around HS Dent and their research that they do. You know, I'm not going to take away from the thunder here, but go to our website. Make sure you take out those last, uh, check out those last few shows and request the white papers. It's absolutely free. So this first part of the show, well, first of all, let's welcome Rodney to the show. Welcome, Rodney. Thanks, Eric. Rick, good to be here. Hey, um... You know, it's it's been a good journey with you guys. You guys get, do some unique work down there. I'm always fascinated. Uh, of course, my, my passion, your passion too, for that matter, for history, and then tying that into economics because the thing that I've always heard is, you know, history tends to repeat itself. And if it doesn't, it sure seems to rhyme a lot, um, as Mark Twain said. So, you know, as I found that fascination and, and what kind of has happened, I'd like to start with, you can talk about yourself here for a little bit and your background, but um, I'd like to talk about, uh, and I think our listeners want to hear this, is where has demographics been and, and, you know, what's kind of the explanation for what's happened in the market in that, you know, cataclysmic collapse that we saw? Well, as you know, Rick, it's it's very interesting from our point of view. It's why we write about it. We we use demographics, which I think of as a boring word. I mean, demographics, my goodness. It's, but it's really the study of people, and that's what makes it interesting. Uh, if we want to know what's happening in the economy, the first thing we do is look at people who is in an economy and what are their choices? What do they, what do they want to do? And that's a very different looking at things. And the story of how it is – so, you know, when you look at, it, at human behavior, you know, which is certainly indicative of history, um, you know, human behavior, what I've noticed is that human ha- behavior doesn't really change that much. It's things that change. And so as we look and see that, that we, one of the most fascinating things I found in the 400 plus charts that HS Dent Research Group put out, and I've been through that demographic school s- several times with you guys because once was not enough. Um, <laughs> that I keep coming back because I'm fascinated by the story and the fact that uh, looking at that correlation between history, human behavior, and then looking at what happened and saying, you know, I want to think that I'm a unique person as a baby boomer, and yet it's like the demographic chart picked me for when I was going to essentially upgrade my housing, you know, when I was going to buy a motorcycle, you know, um, you know, so many other things when I was going to buy a, a, you know, a, a second piece of property. I mean, all those things. And, I, and I'm thinking I'm unique. And yet it seems to me like I'm, you know, demographics, you guys may have me pegged. Well, what we did is uh, looked at how people spend money over time. And I may not know if Rick Saylor is going to buy a motorcycle or Eric's going to buy a motorcycle, but I know that people in general are buying motorcycles around 46 years old. And that one particular chart stands out to people because it's so telling. You know, you see these older guys on Harleys out there kind of recapturing their youth, and that's exactly what happens. If you look backwards from that, you can see why. We tend to get married around 26. We have kids around 28. 
We buy a house around 30, 31. We buy a bigger house around 42 years old because we want the kids a little bit further away from us as they get into their teens. Well, by the time they're 16, 17, they're not talking to us. We're not talking to them. We got a little bit more money. We go out and buy a motorcycle. And you can just kind of see people track through life that way, looking at the big life events or milestones. And it's one of those things. Once you get on that train, as I call it, of spending where you start a family and then you have children, it's hard to get off that train. You're going to go through very predictable steps as they age, preparing for them and providing for them. And then once they get off that train of spending, once they reach the other end and they peak in spending around 48 years old, then people tend to all do the same thing, which is start looking at the next goal, which is retirement. And so if you can think about it in those terms, how people do very predictable things as they age, you can see them getting out of college or going into the workforce around 18 to 20. You can see them Moving to larger towns around 22, 24, you can see them getting married and on the spending train, going through the spending with their kids, and then getting to that 48 to 50, getting serious, saving money and paying down debts in their 50s and early 60s. And that's the type of thing that we look at and say, hey, if we know that spending occurs at these different ages and stages of life, then all we have to know are how many people are at each age to start making some really big forecasts about the economy. And that's what we've done. We were able to talk about a huge boom that was coming in the early 90s. Now, this was the early 90s after the crash of 87, uh, the first Gulf War in 1990, the recession of 91. And here we are saying things are going to be booming and out of control for about 15 to 17 years. I mean, back in the early 90s, we were writing about 2007, 2010 being the next big downturn in our economy. It wasn't magic. wasn't a crystal ball, as you noted. We were just recognizing this huge group of people were smack dab in the middle of raising their families so they were going to spend a lot of money, but they were going to reach that pivotal point of about age 48 around 2008, 2010. And that's when we said they were going to pull in their horns and start saving and paying down debt. And it plays out every day. There was a story in the paper this morning about how Americans have reduced their amount of debt to income. And the reporter was saying, well, this is great because now they can borrow more. Our point is they're not going to. This is exactly what the boomers want to do is have less debt and more assets as they get closer and into, of course, retirement as so many are starting to retire. So, Rodney, I know you know we focus on demographics, but we always get – questions and one of the big questions as well you know we're a global economy now and not every market is a developed market such as the united states or um the european union mm-hmm. so does the same behavior uh happen in developed markets as it does in let's call it emerging markets or the brick nations is it different is it does it act the same how do those correlate if there is any correlation between the two there's some correlation because, uh, as you note, if you're a developed nation, then you're, you're coming into an economy that already has the, the education set. It already has the job situation set, not meaning that everybody has one, but you kind of know what it looks like. If you're a developing nation like an India or a China, then no, it doesn't work exactly the same. People still go through the same phases of their life. But they don't have the ability to gather assets like you do in a developed nation. In those areas – urbanization is much more important. Are you get from working in the fields where he can work for his own living and his own sustenance, which he does, and bringing him to a factory where his labor is multiplied times in terms of output. And so it's that urbanization that makes a big difference when you're talking about developing countries. 
Now, one of the things that I noticed, and I recall from my uh, endless studies with you all, is is the charts. And I'm a very graphic visual person, and of course, that's you can get that today. Our free giveaway is the HS Dent Long Winter Season Ahead, the revised version, and you can get that simply by going onto our website, StraightTalkClearDecisions.com, and if you look at the free offers, it'll be the top tab. Just request that; we'll give it to you. It's a nine-page report. I absolutely love that thing. Because I'm looking at these graphing pictures, and I'm saying the first time I recalled this, uh, Rodney, was when you and Harry were talking about this and how that almost by happenstance you were looking at the, the flow of demographics charts and looking at the the wave of the Dow, and, and they were sitting side by side, and then you just merged the charts together and saw that when you overlaid them, there was amazing correlation between those two. And not to say that 46-year-olds drive the market, However, from that, I guess that uh, that narrative, you know, looking at the amazing correlation in, in what I would call, again, I you know, what we call the baby boomers, or, or let's say in the general market, and then I just look at that huge tidal wave of people born between 1932 and 1964, that it numbers about 92 million people. And when we look at that in relationship uh, to what happened in the Dow adjusted for inflation, we find that in that same time, that as that trend was going up and we were getting more 46-year-olds, that the stock market was going up. When it plateaued, we saw a correction. And then ultimately now, from what you've told us, that for the la- every, uh, every year for the last five years, we've lost 46-year-olds in the Generation X. And then somewhere around 2020, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, <laughs> that Eric's generation starts turning 46 again. Well, exactly. We're... What we're watching are, are these waves of people, um, as you described it, and the boomers, of course, are a very large population, which we all know, and behind the boomers is that Gen X population, which is not nearly as large. There just aren't as many of them. Eric's generation, the millennials, are actually the children of the boomers, and they're as large as the baby boom generation. They're just spread across more years. It's kind of a – the wave is uh, more of a gentle wave instead of a wave with a real big peak. Uh, and so if you can think of it like a, a pig through a python, you know, the, the python eats the, this big bulge and every step of the way through the system, it kind of stretches it. That's what the boomers did. And as they were getting into the economy and getting jobs, it was kind of difficult and kind of a, uh, a rough time getting all those people to work. And that was the 70s. Well, once they were at work, they became very productive and were uh, making a lot of money in the mid-80s through the 90s and early 2000s when they were spending a lot. And if you can just kind of watch that procession and say, look, this is going to happen as they get to that 46, 48-year point in their life, because that's when their children are still at home and at the oldest point, then you can kind of start mapping 46 to 48-year-olds in the economy, see that it rises as the boomers reach that age, which is around 2008, 2010. It falls because there are fewer people in Gen X in general, and then it bottoms out around 2020, 2021, and then the oldest part of Eric's generation will start hitting that magic age and spending the most amount of money in their lives, and we should see the economy ramp up again. And the markets do follow the economy. Not exactly, of course. We've certainly seen it not exactly in the last few years, but in general, they do follow the economy. And, you know, I look at this contrast here uh, before before our break here. Um, I look at this contrast, Rodney, between – 
you know, this, this, what I call a macro trend and a micro trend. And a demographic tool is a, is the 10,000 foot view. So I looked at when I say it to people and I say, you know, Hey, this isn't going to predict a day to day micro trade in the market. But what it does tell you is which way is the, is the tide trending? Is it trending bullish and up, bearish or down? Or is it, you know, going sideways. And I think that's been a, for the last 14 years of my exposure to demographics and how we've applied it into our practice has given us an immense advantage. In fact, it's one of the few, uh, you're one of the few that predicted, I remember Harry's prediction in one of his books where I think it was in the late nineties where he said, you know, going into this next wave, uh, the 2000s, we see that the, we may see the worst period since the seventies and may rival or exceed the Great Depression. And people are always amazed when I quote that and say, when do you think they said that? So how did you guys, you know, how did you see that coming where so many others didn't? Well, and pointed out, that was a great way to, to uh, frame it, Rick, was um, it is, a, a, I call it a broadsword, you know, and you call it a macro trend, is I can't tell you what's going to happen in the next month or two or even the next year. Demographics don't work that way. But I can certainly look to see if there are more people that are going to be desiring and pursuing certain products or, or certain things in their life at the same time. And if you can see that years in advance, you can estimate some demand. And what's really funny about this is um, I give a presentation at my son's high school uh, on a regular basis. And you you to 15 to 18 year old young men and you're trying to explain economics and I said look it's really simple I said if your school was the economy and you were going to market a car to this economy would you try and sell them a minivan or a Mustang and if you chose the Mustang you're just like every other guy in here and that's the thing that's going to appeal to them they're not going to be buying a bunch of minivans if you can see how people are going to change their demand over time, you can make some forecasts. That's exactly what we were doing in the early 90s and saying, look, people are going to be demanding more housing. They're going to be demanding more cars. They're going to be demanding more clothing, more trips, more of all these things that they use to uh, provide for their families as they have these children at home. And in 2000, 2010, the largest group in our economy, these boomers, and then the highest those are going to switch from spending to saving doesn't mean they save everything doesn't mean they live the key is they stop using as much debt to buy stuff they're not using credit to go buy things they want to pay for it in cash they don't want to have debt they want to invest more and start preparing for retirement and there's very little that you being the government or anybody else can do to entice them to change their mind and that's the toggle that we have that other groups don't they still believe that you can lower interest rates and entice people to spend a bunch of money, that you can cut the price on a product and people will buy it just because it costs a little bit less. If they don't want the product, it doesn't matter what it costs. And that's the type of change that we've been able to forecast years in advance going back to the late 80s. Well, I love it, as you well know we do. And uh, we're going to continue this conversation in our next segment. This segment was really about where demographics came from and what it's predicted. In the next segment, we're going to look at, Eric, uh, where demographics is at now. Now, if you've got a question or a comment, I know Karen had sent a comment on Twitter. Thank you, Karen, and said she loves the mature dudes and gals out on the Harleys. <laughs> so uh, if you've got a question you want to direct to us today, you can send it on Twitter at Rick Tyrement. Uh, you can send us at info at straighttalkcleardecisions.com or call 
513-454-9999 for the free giveaways, and we'll be able to answer those, as, those as, questions. As well on Facebook, Rick Saylor Financial, you can send a, follow us or send us a message on Facebook, and we can, we'll um, be glad to answer live on the show. Well, you're listening to the Straight Talk Clear Decisions radio show with Rick and Eric. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Money is an awesome thing. If you know how to handle it, the joy it brings. Hey, what about estate planning? An up-to-date will guarantees you're going to go through probate. And without, well, don't worry about it. The government will decide for you. The three enemies to an estate today are number one, the federal inheritance tax, two, probate, and number three, income tax. So your choices here are you can give all your money away. That might not be any fun. You may need it. Or you can create a trust to hold those assets. And remember, you don't have to own the assets to enjoy the benefits. So a revocable living trust can help avoid the expenses and costly delays of probate, and along with a living will, power of attorney, durable health care power of attorney. So be sure and ask about our attorney partners today for a free consultation. Money is an awesome thing if you know how to handle it, the joy it brings. Hey, have you heard about the new long-term care alternatives? Many of you may know how I managed my mother's care, and I took her through her money in the spend-down into the veterans' benefits. My father was a two-time Korean War vet and right into the Medicaid. She started out at $2,700 a month in assisted living, and at the end of her life, two years later, it was over 8000 the three concerns I hear the most about long-term care insurance protection is that it's expensive, the premiums are rising, and I may never use it. Well, why don't you try what I did? I bought a life insurance long-term care. They can't cancel me. The premiums can never go up. And, oh, yeah, I can spend that death benefit before I die if I'm critically, chronically, or terminally ill. Be sure and ask your advisor today. Rick Saylor, smooth financial sailing for the best part of your life. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Money is an awesome thing. If you know how to handle it, the joy it brings. You're listening to the Straight Talk Clear Decisions radio show with Rick and Eric. Well, you know, Eric, as we continue this conversation about demographics with our guest, uh, Ronnie Johnson uh, from HS Dent, president and senior editor down there, um, you know, I love this topic. I love history. I'm fascinated by it and how it merges into economics. And, you know, one of the things we're big on here is is education, and that's why we love to have, you know, guests on the show. We love to give free giveaways. Well, our free giveaway today is actually the long winter season by HS Dent. And they can get that for free just by going to our website at straighttalkcleardecisions.com. And on the free uh, free offers tab, just click that, and it'll be top of the offer. Uh, and they'll be able to get a free copy. It's a nine-page report. So for those out there that aren't big readers, I mean, I'm an incessant reader. And I'm insatiable, probably it's been described, that I just can't get enough of that. But uh, for those who like the abridged version, I mean, it's it's right down the alley. In it, But you'll get it. 
Correct. Which is what I love about it. Correct. And demographics, this is not a new topic. Uh, this demographics has been around for a while. You know, one of the demographics can also be applied in different sectors of the economy, not just in finance. And I know many of you have probably heard of probably one of the most successful companies in the world, P&G, who has successfully used demographics. You know, it's, demographics is not a crystal ball, but like Rodney mentioned in the first segment of our show, you can find out where people are going and what they're buying, and it's going to be able to make your forecasting a little bit more clear. We just happen to use demographics on the financial side of the business, um, but a lot of companies use demographics. It's not a new concept. It's just how we are integrating it into the financial Economics, system. Economics, which is unique. And I, and I think I heard this quoted right, uh, Rodney, that, uh, that out of like 23 major predictions or what I call macro trends on the market, demographics has been accurate on about 18. Exactly. Does that sound about right? Yep, that's about right. And that's actually in the book from 1993. Those predictions are there on pages 15 and 17 uh, so that people could go look at them. And see, you know, lower oil prices, gold, low inflation, lower interest rates, uh, rising demand for housing things. So, and I know one of the other things we've seen is a is a trend, and again in the past, and then looking at where we're at now, that you know that the number one and number two drivers in the economy, and not just from HS Dent that I've heard, we've heard it in other sources, are the building and buying of houses and the building and buying of cars. And primarily, I think, because, as I understand from you, that that's what people go into debt for. So it's a, it has a multiplying effect with the credit that it creates. And I've heard from another source that the building of one house creates as many as one job for a year and eighty to $90,000 in tax revenue from all the multitude of, of things that go on. Now, that's not to say, you know, when I buy an existing house, there is an economic activity. Uh, or I buy a used car, it's just not as profound as the building and buying of those things. Well, actually, Rick, it's, um, it's much less. If you buy a used car or you buy an existing home, there's a little bit of churn in the economy because you know, you're buying something, getting money for it. Uh, but, but what's the activity? You know, more than maybe a handyman to fix something or a couple of inspectors and a real estate agent. Compare that to building a new home. I mean, having to raise the land, flatten it out, do the what's called the flat work on the ground to get it prepped for the building and pour the foundation and do the stick build and get all the carpenters through and the plumbers and the electricians and the roofers and I mean, all the finish work, the cabinets. It's an amazing amount that goes into a new home. And so that's what the federal government, and in particular the Federal Reserve, has been trying desperately to get going after the last six years. They want our economy to be buying new homes, particularly young people that tend to buy new homes, because they want all those middle-income jobs created. We're just not playing the game. You're not seeing that big demand come through the system like we have in years past. And, and wouldn't you attribute that, as, as I've heard you say, that we're losing 46-year-olds, i.e. The, the peak consumptive spenders, and we've been losing them every day for the last five years. We've got five more years before that bottoms out. And in summer around 2020, we start to see an uptick again in the 80 million uh, millennials or baby echo boomers or whatever they call themselves these days. But now you've said some things and talking about where we're at right now with demographics that that wave may be a little affected because we've taken on more debt as a baby boom generation uh, than we've ever seen. And student debt, I mean, is off the chart. 
We have, and, and that's a, an interesting point. It used to be that, of course, you come out of college and, or just go to work, and that's a different point that uh, only 35% of Americans get a college degree. So we're really talking one in three. We act as if everybody goes to college, which is, of course, not the case. And so most people go into the workforce between 18 and 20. They're not waiting until 23, 24 after college. Uh, but people would go into the workforce, they would get married, and they were looking for that first home. What we've done is taken the people that are presumably going to be the most successful going to college, those that are going on to grad school, and then had them take on enormous debt before they ever start working. And so these people who would typically get out of college, and maybe they had a little debt, maybe they didn't, would be getting married and having children in short order, are now putting those things off because they're carrying this student loan debt with them. And it's not a small number. Student loan debt is now at $1.3 trillion, trillion with a T. This is a, a phenomenal amount of money. And to put it in comparison, credit card debt, all of our credit card debt added together is just under $700 billion. And so student loans are now almost twice the amount of credit card debt in the United States. Now, as I think from a debt service standpoint, what you're basically saying is that, that the consumptive behaviors that typically drive a recovery, the hope in the future and on the horizon, may be straddled and restricted simply by the amount of debt that we have. Uh, exactly right. And uh, it's, of course, Eric's generation here that is coming into this economy and they're getting jobs. I mean, the idea that college graduates, young people aren't getting jobs isn't true. The unemployment rate for the college educated somewhere around 4%. Uh, what they're not getting are jobs that pay a lot of money and have tremendous upside. And it's that visibility for being able to grow your income that's so important. Because if you don't think that you're going to be walking up the ladder of income, why in the world would you take on more debt? Because it would seem like a trap, and it would be. They don't have that visibility of improving their situation, and they're carrying the student loan debt with them. And so it is making pessimistic about the future, it's why they're not buying the homes, and it's why they're not doing the normal things yet that would lead to that coming in the next boom. And this is something we've been watching because, of course, it's very important to us on the demographic side, if the young group, if Eric's generation of millennials aren't going to do the same things, if they're going to put off having families and put off buying these large things that they use a lot of debt for, then it could be very detrimental to our economy for years to come. You know, me being in this generation, and I follow it quite frequently because I am one of them, I look at what I buy and what I'm, what I'm personally into and was into. Granted, I just turned 30 this year, so uh, maybe I'm a little bit more mature. We'll find You're out. You're an old man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I look at it, though. My first property that I bought was a condo, and you know, being from Cincinnati, it was right on the river. I was five minutes from downtown. I was five minutes from... Mount Adams, which is an up-and-coming, you know, young professional um, little town, if you want to call it. And I had a gym at my place. I had a pool at my place. But, you know, that's my generation. We want to have access to everything. I'm not saying we don't like responsibility, but we don't want to be responsible if our roof leaks. I have to go pay three or four grand. The, my, the majority of my population doesn't want that responsibility. They want to be able to go to work, come home, go work out, and head out for the nightlife. That's my generation, and if you know we don't buy that property, we don't start that family like you were mentioning, Rodney, we're just pushing back when we are going to start it. So you look at the baby boom generation and how they're migrating 
out of their homes and out of their property and into assisted living and into uh, property that they need care. And you look at my generation who doesn't want to take over those big pieces of property because they're not, we are not at that stage in our life yet. Yes, I believe we will get there at some point, but that could be five or ten years from now. And knowing that my generation is going to have a pretty big impact, just like the baby boom generation had a huge impact, you have to look at that and forecast what are we spending it on and where could we possibly be going to. You know, the other thing that comes to mind as I think about this, Rodney, is two things. As I'm thinking about the, the comment that you've made in many of your writings here about how many of these of, of Eric's generation, Eric may be able to comment on this, are actually still living with their parents, number one. And then I think about, you know, their um, – uh, that impact on the economies that may delay this "quote unquote" recovery simply because of those kind of factors. Well, and that's as you noted something that about a couple of times this fall is we're watching the millennials and asking why are they not moving out of their parents' homes? And of course, we know the answer. I mean, they became the basement generation here over the last six years uh, because a lot of them were not finding jobs. And these, again, I'm not talking about college educated. I'm talking about those who aren't. Um, and they just can't afford to live on their own. And what's worked against them is we had a, a tremendous move of single-family homes from being owned to now being rental properties. And renting is the thing. So that means there's been a run-up in the price of renting a home. So the exact people you want saving money to go buy a home are spending their money on rental instead and can't get ahead in terms of saving for a down payment. The other thing is their parents have actually gotten used to having them back home. Now, I've got two in college and one in high school. I'm not really sure I want them to rebound after they finish college. Uh, but we have seen a tremendous uptick in the number of multi-generational homes. And they're saying, look, I can save money. Why wouldn't I stay here a little longer and save even more money? It might be good for a person, might be good for a group. But if we're all saving money, what we're not doing is spending it. And that's the key here, spending versus saving. And we look at those key drivers. Again, I, I don't want to beat a horse here, but um, you know, I look at the building and buying of houses. Now, you've commented, and I, I get this feed from you, probably purer and more accurately than because I'm not hearing this anywhere else. And that's what I find fascinating. What about all that excess in the housing bubble that we saw occur into the 90s and even into the 2000s? And you're not going to ask the question, did those houses just disappear because they seem to stop foreclosing on them? Well, they, they stopped foreclosing, but there, there's two or three things going on there. One, uh, some very large real estate investment trusts bought millions of homes, uh, particularly here in Florida, California, Arizona, and Nevada, that they turned into rentals. And so if it was a three-bedroom, two-bath home with a two-car garage without a pool, mind you, pools were a detriment, but had a pool, uh, I'm sorry, without a pool, then chances are it got purchased by one of these large trusts that now are the largest landlords in the United States of America. Uh, the other thing that happened is we had neighborhoods, brand new neighborhoods that were built that no one ever moved into. And at this point, the inventory is so old that no one will ever move into it. I mean, there are entire neighborhoods in Nevada outside of Las Vegas where the homes will be destroyed. They're just going to mow down. They have to be. But some of what slowed down the foreclosure wasn't the turn to rental or wasn't a, you know, a better idea of property use. It was that we made lawyers personally liable for whatever their company did in foreclosure. If they had misrepresented some paperwork or they had been shoddy on their paperwork, then the lawyers bringing the case were personally liable. And when that change happened over, I'm sorry, signing in 2010, 
all of a sudden foreclosures drop like a rock. It's because lawyers are looking at it going, why in the world would I go file any of this if they're going to tag me for it? Yeah, and I found that fascinating. You know, in our commentary, we say, you know, there's plenty of blame to go around. It wasn't just Washington. It wasn't just Wall Street. And it wasn't just Main Street. It was all three because Bill Clinton's administration will admit, uh, and he, I saw it. I've got an article on that where he said, yeah, hey, we thought that, you know, uh, lending to low to moderate income people was a good idea. And Janet Reno had put the gun to the head of the federal banking system, said, if you don't make the loans, you don't get the money. Well, that's their lifeblood. Wall Street, only they can securitize, um, you know, investments and actually basically make an investment out of mortgages like they did. It was just like gas on the fire. And it's a great, if you go into YouTube, you can still see this called House of Cards. And I think it's probably one of the best exposés I've ever ever seen of that. But we can't forget Main Street because who in the world told these people that were making $50,000 a year that you can live in a half a million dollar house and drive foreign cars and you didn't have any money down? And then all of a sudden, you can't. So then well, you and it's not up. getting better, Rick. It's actually getting worse because uh, just in the last six weeks, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the two big giants that actually buy mortgages uh, from banks after they've originated them, have put out rules that they're going to allow people to put down 3% and still have their mortgage bought by these two mortgage giants. And so what they're trying to do is make it even easier for people who don't have savings to go buy homes in an effort to push the housing market, in an effort to get more jobs building homes. And the question remains, when housing rolls over, when prices go back down, which we think is uh, most likely next year, if you've put down 3%, you're underwater almost instantly. Well, what motivation do you have to stay and pay for something where you have no equity? And we start this whole crazy thing over again. So you've also two things here as we head toward our break I want to touch on quickly is what number do you assess to the existing? What do we have in inventory? Uh, And I know you've referred excuse me, uh, shadow inventory, which are those people who are 90 days or later but not actually processed. And then secondly, isn't this in fact what I think you just described, isn't this the catalyst that actually brought us to the collapse the last time and have we not even learned our lesson? Well, in, to your point on uh, inventory, I don't know exactly how many homes are out there that are vacant. It's put out by the Census Bureau every month. And so it's easy enough to find uh, the homes that are vacant and for sale and, of course, on the other side, people who are 90 days late or what's called severely delinquent. Uh, But foreclosures have come down and severely delinquent has come down. So we we know that piece is improving some. Um, But part of what got us into trouble before was the whole thing rolled together. It was the securitization of these loans that were made to – uh, risky borrowers, let's call them that. Uh, they just they were darn close to not being able to afford the home or frankly just couldn't on the face of it. But an untalked about, discussed key in all this was the rating agencies were giving these securitized loans a AAA rating so they were being bought. And I'll tell you, the rating agencies aren't touching any housing bonds now. And so we're not seeing the same sort of securitization happen before. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing because... Instead, the risk is all going to the federal government through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which means all the risk is with me. Well, this is an interesting 
important topic. We're going to continue on into the next segment of our show uh, with where demographics, where we see that going. So if you've got any questions or, or comments, please visit us at info at straighttalkcleardecisions.com. You can send that to us. We can uh, actually answer that question on air while we've got Rodney. And um, I love having him with us on the show. And secondly, you can go to retirement, uh, and that will show up there on our Twitter feed, or if you want to call about the request, go to straighttalkcleardecisions.com, request it, or call the uh, the number 513-454-9999. Well, you're listening to the Straight Talk Clear Decisions radio show with Rick and Eric. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Money is an awesome thing if you know how to handle it, the joy it brings. Hey, have you heard about the new long term care alternatives? Many of you may know how I managed my mother's care and I took her through her money in the spend down into the veterans' benefits. My father was a two time Korean War vet and right into the Medicaid. She started out at $2,700 a month in assisted living, and at the end of her life, two years later, it was over $8,000. The three concerns I hear the most about long-term care insurance protection is that it's expensive, the premiums are rising, and I may never use it. Well, why don't you try what I did? I bought a life insurance long-term care. They can't cancel me. The premiums can never go up. And, oh, yeah, I can spend that death benefit before I die if I'm critically, chronically, or terminally ill. Be sure and ask your advisor today. the best part of your life money is an awesome thing if you know how to handle it the joy it brings hey what about estate planning an up-to-date will guarantees you're going to go through probate and without well don't worry about it the government will decide for you the three enemies to an estate today are number one the federal inheritance tax two probate and number three income tax so your choices here are you can give all your money away. That might not be any fun. You may need it. Or you can create a trust to hold those assets. And remember, you don't have to own the assets to enjoy the benefits. So a revocable living trust can help avoid the expenses and costly delays of probate, and along with a living will, power of attorney, durable health care power of attorney. So be sure and ask about our attorney partners today for a free consultation. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network money is an awesome thing if you know how to handle it the joy it brings well you're listening to the straight talk clear decisions radio show with your host rick sailor and eric hamburg well, you know, this week's topic is a fascinating and a passionate topic for me personally because it incorporates so many things I love, Eric, in, in history and human behavior, sociology, psychology, and economics. And I think that pretty much... Uh, Say that again fast. Yeah, tells the story <laughs> three times fast. Uh, you know, it's just so many things, but I, I love this because it, it gives such a much, a, a much clearer picture to, you know, where we've been. Uh, you know, where we're at and now in this next, this final segment here, we want to talk about 
what the forecast based on that because it's been so accurate from a macro trend. And again, nobody has a crystal ball. And, uh, but I mean, it's been more accurate than I think than anything else we've ever seen. So we've got a, a you know, on our show, a guest here, uh, Rodney Johnson, who is the president of HS Dent, independent research group and senior editor. So Rodney, as we head into this last segment, let's talk about, I want to turn the focus a little bit and turn it toward where do you think demographics sees uh, the market headed? Because I know you guys are saying things different than what we hear and the multitude of other feeds we're getting from other places. Well, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, Rick, because it is interesting, and we do see something different. Um, as I said in the last segment, you know, we've uh, there's a story this morning about American households having less debt and how that gives us the potential to spend more because we have, of course, more debt uh, space available. But it doesn't mean we're going to. And that speaks to what we do versus some other people, where we look at the desires of what people want to do in their lives and then match it up with how they're going to go about using their money. And if they want less debt, then the temptation really isn't going to be there. It doesn't matter what the interest rate is. And so as we see the boomers getting solidly into retirement, the Gen X behind them, if the millennials are not walking up that spending like they had before because they're saddled with debt, then we see years of very low growth. And it's going to be from here to 2020, basically, which is still kind of the economic winter season. And it could go beyond that if the millennials aren't spending like they would. And what that means, in particular for people listening to shows like this, is low interest rates and not a lot of economic opportunity for growth. If you have very low interest rates, it's very difficult to build those streams of income that would help you build a solid retirement case. And that's what so many Americans are struggling with, is building up that sort of thing for their own retirement. And so we think that's going to be echoed around the globe because other nations, other developed nations, certainly the European, certainly uh, Japan, and even China, which uh, some people are not aware of, these populations are getting older very, very quickly. China didn't have a lot of children, uh, speaking on in terms of percentage, because they had the one-child policy come into effect around 1980. We're the only developed nation that is having enough children to simply replace our population. Not even grow a lot, just replace it. And so that's why we're doing a little bit better than other nations. But as you noted in an earlier segment, it's kind of a global economy. So low economic growth with very low interest rates is what we see for years to come. And yeah, so what that means to the listeners is that, you know, if you have hopes, and there is, what a last report, Eric, $7.5 trillion that we've seen sitting in bank accounts uh, with a risk-off kind of attitude. We don't want to risk our money because we're uncertain. And, and, and it's like the average investor certainly uh, may be paralyzed by fear, but certainly may have a better sense in that respect about what's really going on than maybe some of the talking heads because you look at that and you say, hey, there's a reason why they're sitting there, but the bad news is is they may be in that scenario where they feel like they owe the bank because they're not making anything. And inflation, even though it's not out of control, is certainly uh, – we use a real rate of inflation because they take out food and fuel – you know, but uh, the 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 core, or uh, I guess the base inflation, can't they can't seem to hit that two percent, you know, mark. And and the reason, you know, people think well, inflation is bad. Well, no, a healthy amount of inflation is good because it means people are buying your stuff and there's economic activity. And I think what you're saying, Rodney, is that uh, that's going to stagnate. And and again, I, I got to look at this as I look into the future. Um, in the near future here, and you and I talked about this with the fracking revolution and the energy contributions and potentially what that could, 
you know, stimulate in addition to what we've uh, what we're seeing with demographics. Yeah, and, and fracking is a great deal. You know, fracture drilling for oil has been a boon to the U.S. economy for the last six years. In fact, if you took the jobs created in just Texas since 2008 out of the equation, the U.S. economy would still have fewer jobs today than it did in 2007. And so fracking has been a tremendous boon to us, but it is sort of specific. It's specific to Texas, Louisiana, and then you go up a little bit in North Dakota, and then there's a little bit of shale activity over in Pennsylvania with Marcellus Shale. Um, but it's not as if everybody's going to work for an oil company. It's not that they could or even would. And it becomes something of this game of a, of a moving boom, you know, where you might be able to sell pickup trucks for a lot of money in North Dakota or in Houston, Texas. You don't get the same kind of demand for that, you know, all along the East Coast and all the way out to the West Coast, certainly the Northwest Coast. And so we have this recession-type feeling in most of America with a couple of bright spots of growth, uh, but it's not going to be nearly enough to put back to work all the people we have that are looking for not just work, but better paying work, because so many are working part-time, even though they want full-time work. And I think that it speaks to the, the narrative that uh, this is still a cautious economy, because even though we hear some of the people at the talking heads saying, hey, it looks like, and you hear this too, that, hey, it looks like, hey, we're getting better, we're, we're doing well. Okay, well, no, we're in a slow growth kind of cycle. And uh, the rest of the world is either either contracting, recessionary. You mentioned China. You know, I've heard, you know, we're the number one consumptive nation. The Eurozone is the number one consumptive block, and China is the number one exporter. And, um, you know, Japan's in full-blown recession, it looks like. Looks like Europe is headed in. They're about three years behind us in recession. And so it looks like their quantitative easing is coming in. Uh, so, I mean, there's a number of factors there that, again, I'll say demographics called and helped us from a macro trend. To, and now we're seeing that line up. But, no, it's not an all-clear signal. And I like the idea that we're slow-growing. But the fact is, we're not, we're not strong enough to carry the rest of the world or, or revive it into a status of where we were before. No, not at all. And, and you hit the nail on the head. You look at the Japanese, and they're printing even more yen, and they're desperate to get their uh, constituents to spend money. And because a lot of the money is held by the older generation, and Japan is actually losing people. Every year, the number of Japanese on the planet shrinks, and it's been this way since 2005. They're literally dying off. And the older set has this block of money that they're, they're not spending because they're so worried about outliving their money. Well, you get over to Europe, and the southern European countries are very angry at the Germans because they say, well, the Germans are exporting a lot of stuff, which means they're getting money, but they're not spending it at a fast enough rate. Well, Germany is a very old population. And again, they look at it and go, why would I spend it all? Who's going to care for me for the last 15 years of my life if I spend all my money? And that kind of mindset is what's going around the developed world and, of course, flowing into China, as I talked about. And that's the piece that people can't seem to get their arms around. Just because you have low interest rates and just because you have an inflation rate above interest rates may be painful for people to keep the money in the bank, but that doesn't make them take it out. They're still wanting to keep that money available for them in the years to come, which means they don't spend it, doesn't grow the economy. And Ronnie, I think I heard this from you either earlier this week or last week. You know, a low interest rate, yes, that's good for a family or um, a household because, yeah, if you have access to capital, you get it for very cheap. The problem that we seeing in Europe with the TLTRO that's coming out, and yet the last or this week's um, number was at $130 billion, I believe, which was not too much but not too little. The problem is 
if we aren't if they aren't spending money in Europe, why is a company going to go lend money from a bank if their um, demand isn't there? And I think that's the whole issue: is you can make money so cheap that it's only to a point where people are going to take it. If they can't if they can't capitalize on that cheap money, why are they just going to keep taking loans from banks? Right, and consumption is the chicken and the egg. You know, uh, so, and as I've heard you say this, Rodney, that um, just because, and I've said this, and I echoed that back, and I don't know how many speaking engagements Eric and I had just to show a hand, said, well, just because, you know, the Fed has these couple tools, okay, we can lower interest rates, uh, you know, we can uh, supply more money into the system, which is what they've done with all the different techniques they've done. But at the end of the day, they've got a limited number of rabbits. And I would say to the group, I'd say, well, just because they lowered interest rates, you all went out and bought a bigger house, right? You build a bigger yeah. house. And they would all go, no. And I'd go, oh, well, you neither. So the Fed, right. again, it's, it's, it's psychology and it's behavior more so than it is the cost of money. Right. And it gets back to the same thing, you know, with demographics. And the Federal Reserve lowers interest rates so that people can borrow more money to spend it. It doesn't make them want to borrow the money. And I use the example of, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve has lowered short-term interest rates to where we're all getting basically 0.2 on our money market. So how many people have taken all their money out of money market because their rate of interest is less than inflation? Nobody raises their hands. Like, that's right. The money's not for consumption. You're saving it for something else down the road, even though you're, no, that you're losing 1% a year to inflation. Right. And I think you hit the nail on the head as, as we start to wrap up our show here that, um, you know, you told me that, the, you know, the 46 to 50-year-olds, so let's say 46-year-olds here, a little different around the world. But um, if, if that is the peak consumptive spending age, then the 50 to, let's say, if the train, the front of the train now – People born in 1932 or 82, their peak spenders on health care, the 50-year-olds are paring down their, their debt, saving for retirement, and beginning to spend more on health care for the rest of our lives. That's exactly it. One of the things that grows dramatically after age 52 is spending on health care and pharmaceuticals because we all get old and we start to break down and things hurt that nobody told us was going to hurt. Yeah, and I haven't quite figured that out yet. You and I talk about I had to give a bike riding Kudos to you for still riding. My uh, my lower back can't take that. At least the speed riding I used to do, but I did get two motorcycles. So uh, somebody told me that's not the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, well, this is a fascinating topic, and you know I could just we could go on and on about this forever. But I think call in and get just go onto the website and and straighttalkcleardecisions.com and request the long winter season. I think you'll find it. If you found the show fascinating, you're going to love that read. It's a nine page read. It really is, 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 has charts that supports and, and talks about and shows you some of the points that we have, uh, and talked about on the show today. Now, Eric, there's also a couple of their places in business on Facebook. Yeah. Go to Facebook. Um, Rick Shiller financial, like us, follow us. We do post timely events, timely topics, our speaking schedule, but also if you follow us on Twitter at Rick Tireman, we also follow Rodney's group, HS Den, so you'll get some of their feeds as well because, you know, HS Den is about fundamentals. You can only pervert fundamentals for so long, and eventually it will shine through. And that's what we love about Rodney and their group is they tell us what's really happening, what's going on behind the scenes, not what it's some talking head wants to tell somebody well, that I think they want to fit, hear. it fits within our, our, our range of straight talk, clear decisions, doesn't it? Because, you know. I believe so. And, and if you go on there, you can you can get a free subscription to the e-newsletter. And, again, you'll get a feed every week that comes that uh, Rodney writes and we love, you know, called the Market Trends segment. And it 
talks exactly to that. This is what happened. This is what it means to you. Call us on the uh, the phone, 513-454-9999. Uh, visit us. You know, if you've got questions here, we can answer them on the show at any time. Info at straighttalkcleardecisions.com. So, um, you know, Eric, as we kind of wind down the year, we uh, head toward the holidays. You know, this has been a good year for our clients. And I, I think that uh, is, again, this is one of the critical tools, and I'm, I, I, I'm still amazed at how few advisors actually apply this tool in their practice or, number two, apply it appropriately. Because, you know, like anything, we don't swallow anything without whole. You know, we've we got to apply it to our situation so, uh, and, and see how we're reading it and feeding it. So it's, it's, been a, it's been a valuable tool. I don't know how many clients, you know, we said in 2008 we were telling them based on the feeds we were getting that the market was going to lose 50% and housing was too. And, you know, if you lose 50%. You have to make 100% just to get back to where you started. So what's our motto? Don't lose 50 <laughs> Rod, so, Rodney, it was great having you on the show today. We got about probably fifteen or twenty seconds left. Is there any closing words you have for the listeners? Don't believe don't everything you uh, hear on television or read in the papers. Believe what you see on the street. Oh, that's good advice, Rodney. Well, listen, uh, our best to you and your family. Enjoy those warm temperatures. Send some our way. You guys have a great holiday, and uh, uh, we'll talk to you next year. And I'm. To stay in contact. Thank you, Ray. Eric. Thanks for listening to the Straight Talk Clear Decisions Radio Show with your transparent wealth management host, Rex Saylor and Eric Hamburg. Rick Saylor, smooth financial sailing for the best part of your life.